Well, first of all, happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you. Even you fathers played a little role. Good job. Um, I mean, you know, it's part of the deal. Uh, here's your Mother's Day sermon. Keep on trucking. So it's about as good as it gets. So if you came here to hear the big Mother's Day sermon, that was it. Just keep going. Don't quit. Um, you know, it's a setup for failure for us as husbands. So today's probably all less than what you expected par for the course. So, uh, you know, so here we are. So that's, that's Mother's Day for you. We're going to keep motoring through Ephesians. Not that uh, we don't, but, you know, just kind of what we're, what we're doing. Now, if you've been with us for any period of time, you'll know that we've spent a lot of time in chapter four. Chapter four is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> packed with all kinds of deep, rich, action-oriented things that Paul's calling us to. Well, we're going to not Beat up any by doing two whole verses today. And it's going to build on this idea of how we begin to really, truly live this thing out. In chapter 4, Paul shifted gears. He turned from the idea of theology and these deep pieces of like doctrine to faith and practice and how do we begin to live it out. And the whole first part was about unity. Church has got to be one. Church has got to be together. We're going to see the full measure of Christ. And then he begins to explain how we do that. Last week, we got deep into the weeds of that by talking about these ideas of being truthful and being righteous in our anger and being generous and being useful. And, and this morning, we're going to take that one step further. We're going to look at verses 29 and 30, and we're going to talk about how one singular thing has the ability to both kill and give life. And how Paul is going to build on this idea of saying the things that we do in our Christian life matter. And he's going to talk this morning about this, especially the way that we use words. Words give life and words take life. And so if we can even, I told you last week, it's the stuff we're doing is super simple in idea, but incredibly hard to practice. If it's possible to say it, this week's kind of idea is even simpler, yet even harder to put into practice. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4, me in verse 29 and 30. And I promise this message this morning is for you even if you think it's not, because it's deeply for me. These things that he's going to talk about make and break life, and so we need to listen carefully. Um, we're going to breeze through a lot of things this morning, touching briefly on them, because there's so much depth and richness in these two verses. Uh, we're going to touch on it, and we're going to talk about how our lives, our words can either give life or they can take it. So as we prepare our hearts to go before the Lord this morning in his word, let's take a quick moment, let's pray, let's ask God to teach us, and then we will dive straight into these words and get in depth this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather in this place. Thank you for every single uh, person here who is a mother or who has a mother. Uh, Lord, you have blessed us through the women in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that even in those unperfect relationships that we have with our earthly mothers, Lord, that you demonstrate to us what your beautiful and perfect and complete love looks like. And so, Lord, we are grateful that this is how you've chosen to create and order the world through these amazing women. And so, Lord, some of us have perfect relationships with our moms. Some of us don't know them. Some of us have hard relationships. But what we do know through all those things is that you are a God who creates life. And as we're going to see this morning, you have given us the ability through our words to create life and take life. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that those things would be we would see the gravity of those things, that it wouldn't fall on deaf ears, that for the next few moments we might understand exactly what you're telling Paul, who is telling us that the church needs to do to engage in this picture of giving life. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, just as you sit here, ask the Lord just to teach your heart. 
I know we got reservations and plans here in a few minutes and things going on for folks got to get home and cook or go out. But just for the next few moments, let's just say, God, you get all of us. Let me listen. Not listen to try and leave, but listen to try and alter who I am for your glory. Ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Just kind of whisper that in your soul. Lord, teach my heart. Take a moment as we do each week and pray for the person around you. Uh, Pray for the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Lord, we pray that you would just make us a people that care so deeply about the spiritual lives of others that we pray for them. We want them to know you, to experience you, to grow in their faith. Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning, and we ask these things in the risen and holy and perfect name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, we've got uh, this Sunday and then next Sunday we're going to wrap up chapter 4, and in two weeks we're going to launch into chapter 5. But as I mentioned in that little intro, we are now into the deep kind of kind of valleys of action. So Paul has taken us from these great kind of ethereal ideas of of theology and doctrine and unity to how do the nitty-gritty pieces of our faithfulness matter, like the truthfulness of our words, the not sinning in our anger, the being useful in our work, being generous with our money and our lives, all of these sort of nitty-gritty pieces. And he's going to break it down even farther this morning, and he's going to talk about the nitty-gritty ideas of our words and how they impact the church, and the people around us. And so let's look at verse 29. We're going to look at two verses this morning, and that's it. Uh, We're going to break those out pretty good. So this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So verse 29 comes on the heels of what we were doing last week, right? Be honest, be true, be true in your words, right? Be generous, be useful, be righteous in your anger, and your anger do not sin. So he he takes those actions and he says, and on top of just the doing things, right? On top of making sure that your life is righteous in its anger and it's useful in its work and it's generous in its giving, on top of all those things, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And he's talking directly to believers. This isn't just a call for the watching world. This is a call to the church in Ephesus, to those that have been gathered. The most educated, the most taught, the most prized church in all of the communities that Paul planted. Remember, he spent two and a half, almost three years with them on a daily basis, teaching and teaching and teaching. Looks at this church and he says, listen, combined church in Ephesus, right? Jews and Gentile, all the things that we've worked over for the past weeks and weeks and weeks, right? You as a community, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. What Paul's getting at is this. He's going to tell us two main things today. He's going to say that the church has got to be in a place to refuse to speak death and instead choose to speak life. 
And I know that, that first section where he says, do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth, he's essentially saying that, refuse to speak death. Now, those aren't Paul's words exactly, but let me show you how he's getting there. Because that is the idea. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now, Scripture's full of examples of this. Colossians 3 is full of it. Talks about rage and slander and, and filthy language and all these kind of things. And so I put into a few categories just for our exploration this morning what some of this unwholesome talk is. Like, what is it exactly that Paul's looking at the church saying, make sure these things don't happen? Because he wouldn't address it if they weren't happening. Because remember, you've got these two different groups of people that are so drastically different. And the Jewish people are a little frustrated. The Gentiles are just let in. They've lived the right life. They've done the right things. They've done all the things that Jewish people should do. And the Gentiles have lived this worldly thing. And now they are all one people. And they didn't exactly get along. Remember, for decades upon decades, the Jewish people wouldn't even walk through non-Jewish land. They would go around Samaria, for example. They wouldn't mix. There was the Sorek, that outer wall of the temple that kept the Gentiles out. They couldn't even worship in the same place as the Jews. And now they're thrust into one life together. And to think that they all just held hands and got along is a complete misunderstanding of Scripture. The entire book of Ephesians is really built on this is who you are now. And to think that they talked kindly to each other, eh, you know, our kids can't even talk kindly to each other. So imagine what it's like here, right? But Paul says, listen, don't let it happen. Refuse to speak things that bring death. Don't let any unwholesome talk. So what is unwholesome talk, right? Well, Scripture, you can find these things everywhere. Scripture is very clear. It gives a bunch of clear examples. We're not going to move through all their verses just for time today, but I'm going to list a few of them for you. The first is this idea of vulgar, right, or dirty, if you will, language, talk. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Colossians 3, rid filthy language from your lips. The first example of unwholesome talk that comes to my mind when I think about this is this idea of filthier, vulgar language. Now here, I will be honest with you. There are a lot of times where the well-placed cuss word really works. Like it just feels right, right? Even though it feels wrong, it feels super right. There's a place in my heart at times for the four-letter volley. That is just there. Now, that is not right, but it, it feels at the time like there is the place. But we're talking about something a little bit deeper than the occasional breakdown, right, which we all will have. We're talking about this idea of continual language, that we are called to rid this continual language, foul or vulgar language from your lips, right? When I was in the fourth grade, I played football for the very first time, full-on tackle football. And we played in this little, little peewee league, and, and there were three distinct teams. There was the third grade team, or the third grade team, the fourth grade team, and the fifth grade team. And the fifth grade team was coached by this guy. I won't mention his name because I'm sure his kids are still around, but we'll just call him Coach T for the sake, because that was a, the, the initial of his life. Everybody knew who Coach T was because he was intense. I mean, intense. The, he was legendary in terms of what he would make his kids do, right? These are fifth graders. Make them do. And, and it was like Paul Bunyan-esque. Like, did you hear? He made them run 17 miles, right? 17 miles. No water. No water. And he was through rocks at him the entire time. Do you know he killed a kid last year? I swear, my dad went to his funeral. Kid died. Yeah. So this is a legend about Coach T. But what was legendary about Coach T was his language. 
you were indoctrinated in the fifth grade into words that were profoundly deeper than a fifth grade should be a part of. And he lobbed them and leveled them at you, right? It wasn't just a part of his, his language. It was part of his lexicon. It was a coming of age of sorts, right? But he had been there for 15 or 20 years, and so none of the parents really wanted to address it because he was this old, gruff, like, kind of rub some salt on it kind of deal. You broke your leg, put some dirt on it. It'll bind it up. Run it off, right? But it's dangling there. Doesn't matter. Bleep, 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 bleep. That was Coach T. All I remember about Coach T is his mouth. I don't remember a single thing that he did as I worked through my fourth grade and fifth grade football career that he taught us about football. His legacy to me, that I am standing here, 39 plus a few extra, right? This joke always works. It works. It's faithful to me. That that's the legacy I remember was his mouth. And we still talk about it. My brother and I actually had this conversation last time we were together about this coach, about can you believe this is, I mean, because my brother now coaches with some of his kids, and it's like that's the legacy. The legacy was what came out of his mouth. It was vulgar, and it was offensive, and it was dirty, and it was gross. And I think about it now, and as a fifth grader, I thought, well, this is crazy and exciting, and I'm learning new words. But now I'm thinking the legacy this guy left me was a legacy that was it's broken. Instead of a legacy as a young man and a coach and all these kind of things he instilled, I just learned these things, right? Vulgar and filthy language on our lips have a way of robbing legacy. It's a way of, of swapping those things out. And you know kind of what that is. You know those people that you're around where the joke that they tell is so inappropriate or so not right at the time that you feel uncomfortable. Or every other word is... This word that you know is just wrong and rough and you're public and you're kind of cringy, you want to leave a legacy of wholeness, right? The idea of unwholesome talk is really the idea of things that divide, un making something unwhole. So if it's unwholesome, it's not just about what is uh, moral, it's really about what breaks apart. And filthy and vulgar language and jokes and things, they have a tendency to break apart. They, they, take what would be the legacy and they replace it with something else. Paul talks very strongly about it. So we have this idea about unwholesome talk being vulgar and filthy language. We also have this idea of unwholesome talk being this idea of untruthfulness. We talked about it last week. Very clearly, Paul states last week, stop lying. Be someone who tells the truth. Why? Because lying divides. It breaks trusts. When you're beginning to not tell the truth, you begin to break trust with people and it breaks trust in the church. When you don't do things that you'll say you'll do or you take credit for things that aren't yours. Remember we talked about all these last week. You begin in your language to break down avenues of unity and trust. If you lie enough to the people in your life, they will no longer believe you. It's unwholesome. It's dividing. If your words cannot be trusted, right, then in the context of the church, you begin to bring about brokenness and division. The biggest thing that begins to destroy marriages is slowly the anchor and movements of untrust. This person never tells me the truth or I don't believe them or whatever. And so this idea of untruthfulness. So we've got this idea of, of, uh, of vulgar, filthy language, untruthfulness. We have this idea of gossip. Scripture is full of the call not to gossip. And when we think about gossip is simply talking about people behind their back. But you know what gossip really is? It's just sharing information that isn't yours to share. That's all it really is. It doesn't matter if the person's there or not. When you share information that's not yours to share, you are actively participating 
in gossip. And gossip destroys, right? Because what it does is it wounds the person that you are speaking about. And the church is horrible in this area. In fact, the worst kind of gossip is the sharing of information designed as a prayer request. We do it all the time. We want to be the one in our own broken self-esteem to share somebody else's information. I have wounded people in my life unintentionally in this area. The truth is, is that we don't set out to say, oh, I'm going to get share these things. But we love to be in the know. And we love to be the one that is sharing things in the know. And so we're like, oh, I'm sitting with our, are the guys at the guys' Bible study, or the women at the women's Bible study, in our life group. I'm like, I don't know if you guys heard, kind of keep this to yourself, but so-and-so is dealing with this. Is that yours to share? Right? Those are the questions the church has to ask itself. We probably should pray for them because, you know, his... His marriage has fallen apart. Is that helpful? Or does that divide, right? So now there's a bunch of people without all the information, without all the story, under the guise of praying for people that have now been shared information that was probably not theirs to have in the first place, and the church begins. And you know how divisive this is if you've ever been on the receiving end of gossip. That punch in the stomach. Does it make you want to go back? Or do you just want to run? Well, when that happens, you don't want to return to those places. You're angry or you're hurt or you're sad, and you don't want to go back. The truth is is that gossip is unwholesome and it divides, right? It's part of this litany of things. And then you build on this idea of gossip with the idea of slander. Slander is a really aggressive-sounding word, and most of us think we don't do it. We're like, I don't slander anyone, right? But truth is, slander from a legal sense is anything that you say that hurts somebody else's reputation or hurts that person. But from a biblical sense, it's just speaking evil against someone else. It just means that you're talking about someone else in a way that is evil. Like, I just really don't like that person. Or you know they do this. Or you know, even when you're saying it to them or about them, that we begin to speak evil, hurtful, harmful things about other people. That's all slander it is. And every single one of us has done it. I hate him. Really? Why? Because he's got some sin, did something wrong. Pretty sure you could fall into those categories. We begin to speak evil about people, and it begins to break down the barrier. And Paul's talking about this right in the context of the community. This is happening in the community. We're going to see next week even that Paul's going to call us to rid some of these things. And one of those things that we're going to talk about is this idea of slander and rage and malice. And they are all in the same category because my words are meant to wound at that point in time. Slander is the part of us that doesn't disguise our evil talk with the idea of, oh, we should pray for them. It's the part of us that just comes out and says, that person is bad and don't like them. And I won't come if they're here. Right, so we've this unwholesome talk, this filthy language, this lying, this gossip, this slander. And then there's this sort of coverall, which is really what Paul's getting at. And that's this. Unwholesome talk is essentially, for the believer, anything that comes out of our mouth that is just generally unkind. We are called to be effectors, right, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would speak and love the way that Christ does. That Christ has been a part of the creating of the universe. That he has breathed life into us. That he has knitted us together in our mother's wombs. That he made you and he makes no mistakes. That you are fearfully and wonderfully and beautifully made. 
We do not have the right to destroy God's creation with unkindness. You know, our parents always told every single one of us, if you don't have anything kind to say, don't say it. There's a lot more truth there than you think. Not just because you don't want to be someone who says unkind things, but because unkind things kill. And I'm not using that idea of death and killing lightly. I know what I'm saying. When we speak unwholesomely, we are speaking death. Because when you gossip and you slander and you are unkind and you use vulgar language and you lie, you are destroying unity, you are destroying trust, you are destroying your own witness in the world and the church's witness in the world. There's a reason the world hates the church because of its judgmental hypocrisy and its attitude. Because the church is judgmental and hypocritical. They're not making that up. When the world looks at the church and says, I don't want to be a part of that because I watch what they do and they are judgmental and they are hypocritical. You can't be like, no, 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 we're not. No, we are. We choose our moral soapbox of the day and ignore the others. We stand on them and shout people down. We destroy each other with our words. We gossip, we slander, we speak ill and unkind to one another in the community. It's the reason that Jesus gives the disciples the new command. When he says, a new command I give you, this is how the entire world will know you follow me, by how you love one another. How do we begin to love one another? Is it just by doing stuff? You walk out with an umbrella and let somebody in? No, it's how you speak and treat people. You speak to them and treat them with the way that Christ would. The church has got to be in a place where it is actively refusing to speak death. When you gossip, when you lie, when you slander, when you speak unkindly, when you use filthy and vulgar language, you are speaking words of death. Trust me, if you've ever been in a marriage or you've been married, you know that your words have the ability to crush And you know how to use them and how to craft them and how to hang on to them. You know how to use the exact phrase that will crush the heart of your spouse every single time. And when you get in the right moment at that right argument, you let it fly. That one thing that harps on their one brokenness because you know that one weakness because you've been married for 12 years. You have the ability and you know it to destroy. You have the ability to to destroy your children's life with how you speak things over them. You're worthless. You're this. You're that. You'll never amount to that. Quit trying. I know you're all sitting here going, we don't do that. But every single one of us has either seen it or been a part of it. Maybe your own parents raised you that way. Or maybe you caught yourself in the middle of it saying something to your child and projecting this over them that your words are bringing Death unintentionally. As believers, we have got to be in a place that Paul is saying to refuse to speak death. It's not even coming out of my lips, out of my mouth, right? All that's packed in this idea of letting no unwholesome talk, right? You know, the reality of all this truthfully is I'm sure that you have Siri or Alexa in your house, right? They're hanging out there all the time. And they're listening. No, I, don't, I won't go down this rabbit hole here, but they're listening all the time. They have to because they're listening for, hey, Alexa, hey, Siri. 
What if they recorded everything in your house? And I'm not saying they do, but they probably do. But let's pretend they do for a moment. Let's say that Siri and Alexa hear every single thing that happens in your home. And they were to print a transcript out, and I were to read it out loud here for everybody. How did this morning go? Happy Mother's Day? Maybe not? You know what's crazier than that? That God himself hears every single word spoken in your home before you ever utter it. I mean, he's the ultimate Siri and Alexa, right? He hears everything. What comes out of our mouth falls on the ears of God. How you speak to your wife, your children, your husband, your parents, on the phone, to your coworker, whatever, how you speak, God hears and he knows. Like it matters deeply. We should be refusing to let the things that bring death come out of our mouth, even when we want to say them so badly. But like all things that Paul does, right? Paul is not just giving us a list of instructions. He's actually giving us a list of things to substitute. It's not about just not doing something. It's about replacing it with something else because Paul wants us to have abundant, real, true life, right? John 10.10 even says this. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came so that you might have life and have it to the full. Everything that the gospel is about is not about a list of not doing things. Like, don't speak kind, unkindly, don't lie, don't cheat, right? Don't gossip, don't cuss, don't do all those things. It's more about refusing to do those things so that we can do the opposite, which is, I'm going to choose to speak life. This past, uh, I guess it was Friday or Thursday or whatever, I was stopped at On Cue to get Meredith a drink, and I went inside, and I was about to get the fountain drink, and these two girls were in there. One was probably 11, good with ages. One was probably 8, which means they were probably 18 and 12 or whatever. But one looked 11, and the other one looked 8, and they had their mom's credit card, because I heard the old, oldest one say, I've got mom's credit card. And they were going up to the Slurpee or the Freezy, QE machine thing there that gives out those things, and they both reached over, and they grabbed the giant 44, the large, huge cups, and they stood there in front of it, and they stopped for a moment. And the older girl has the credit card of her mom, and she says to the younger one, she says, Mom didn't say what size, but I don't think she'd want these, right, these giant ones. And the little sister looked at her, and she said, You only live once, sister. <laughs> I lied to you not. And they both thrust those things under the Slurpee and just filled them up, and I thought, I want to be your friends. Like, every part of me wants to be friends with your sister, who just goes, This is it. Ride or die. We are going 44s to the house, right? And I love it because I just thought, look, this whole thing that, that Paul's actually doing with us is about giving life. It's not about a series of things that we don't do and get knocked down morally and make sure you don't, 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 don't. It's the great exchange. And the great exchange is right here. Refuse to speak death and do what? Choose to speak life. Listen to the second part of that verse, right? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit all those who listen. Listen to these four things. But only what is helpful for building others up. So the first thing about speaking life is, what I'm about to say, is it helpful? Is what I'm about to tell you helpful? 
So what I'm about to speak is it actually do something for you that moves you forward. I remember the first time I ever preached a sermon in front of a, a church itself. It was in Austin, and it was my first real sermon. And they did this sort of youth Sunday thing where the youth pastor gets up and he preaches, and all the kids give these quasi-testimonies, and, and everybody has to sit there and listen to the youth choir and all those kind of things. And in our church at the time, we had this gentleman by the name of Andy Dearman. And Andy Dearman was a, he was the dean of students and the head of the New Testament professor at the seminary, head New Testament professor at the seminary, a PhD, smartest guy I've ever known. We actually, uh, as part of our mission kind of spotlight, you're going to hear us talk about his son, Andy, who, or uh, Giles, excuse me, who we support as missionary, side note. But, but Andy went to the church. And Andy, and I had not yet started that part of my seminary career, but I knew who Andy was, and I had all his books, and he's genius. And truthfully, he's one of only eight people in the world that can translate Moabite. Like, he is unbelievable, right? And he's the kind of guy that just sort of follows along with your teaching, and he has his Greek New Testament out there because it just makes more sense when he, you know, he's just, he's just a genius. So I'm preaching my very first sermon, and it was a train wreck. Like, I mean, it's, this stuff is hard. Like, I don't think you guys get how hard this is. Like, it's so hard. Like, it's not like I just walk up here and be like, hey, there will be an Ephesians 4. This is like hours worth of study and things because the weight of what we do is huge. You just get to willy-nilly go up here and talk about the word of God and be like, all right, go home. The Bible tells us there is a penalty, right, that comes with this thing if you do it incorrectly, right? So nonetheless, I preached this train wreck, right, of a, of a sermon. And I know it. I'm all over the road. I had like 11 points, six stories, two palms, like all kinds of stuff going on, right? And, uh, and I get done, and I know it was a disaster, right? But it's the first time I've ever done it. Church has always filled a lot of grace. It's great. And he comes up to me afterwards, right, walks in front, and I thought, oh, good God almighty, this is going to be. It's Andy Dearman's all these kind of things. And I go, well, Andy, how did it go? And he goes, man, you did great. And I go, stop. And he goes, no, I'm being serious. He goes, you did great. What people walked away with, was they heard about Jesus. Just let him do the rest. And again, he could have dissected. I think I tackled some seven, verse, seven chapters in like Jonah, something crazy, you know, whatever. He's like, I'm doing way too much. And he's just said of going, hey, you know, he didn't give me if I just said, you did great. People heard about Jesus. Let him do the rest. And what I thought of that moment was there were so many things he could have done. He could have been like, hey, Trib, you know, I've been preaching for 45 years. I got some great stuff. Let's go to lunch. He could have done all these other things. That would have been great. Fine. But in that moment, what I needed to hear, it was super helpful, was that I didn't mess up an opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. And Andy knew in that moment, all I needed to know was that I didn't ruin something. And so he just said, you did great. He didn't have a whole bunch of critiques, didn't say anything. He just, and I walked out of there feeling super encouraged by the idea that I didn't ruin something. Because I would have gone home and been like, oh, I blew it. I really, truly blew it. You did, you did great, right? You did great. Is what I'm saying helpful? He says, the first thing he says, don't let me hold some talk, but what is helpful? And then he says this, for building others up. So helpful is great, but helpful going one step further means that it builds this thing. It actually adds depth and strength. So you can be helpful, right, by handing someone a hammer. Hey, can you hand me that hammer? Sure, while you're building that wall. But to help build them up means that I get in there and I help you raise the two-by-fours or I hold them together or I carry these things. I'm doing something that's adding depth and strength to something, right? We've all been a part of these things also. We've been a part of things that have given us depth and strength. 
And the idea here is simply that, is what I'm saying not only helpful, but is it actually building character, building depth, building strength? Are the words I'm about to speak, are they giving something more than just their words, their value, right? Is what I'm saying helpful? Is it building others up? We'll move on a little quickly. And it says, according to their needs. This is my favorite of all these, right? Because most of what we speak has little to do with the needs of anybody else and always to do with our own needs. We usually speak things. Even when we speak advice, we like to come from an area of being an expert. I'm not experts about anything. We, most of the stuff we read, we see on TikTok. Like That's what we think we know. You know, you can cook a ham three different ways. I saw it on TikTok. A ham cooker? But we like to volley these things out there because we want to hear ourselves speak and we want to feel like we have importance. And usually the things that we say benefit our needs. We're great at this. Parents are horrible about this, right? Here's our, our, my classic. Hey, I heard, uh, I heard James or Johnny was taking the uh, ACT. How'd that go? Oh, uh, you know, it was, it, well, no, you know, it's so good. We're going to get into class, but thanks for asking. And then they go, oh, how did uh, so-and-so do? You're a kid. And you're like, oh, well, it was his first time, you know, so great or so. They got a 36. You're like, is it that perfect? You're like, oh, is it? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. You ask the questions and they'll ask it back. You don't care how Johnny did or James did on theirs. You got to talk about yours, right? Because it benefits you. You don't really want to know. Nobody really wants to know. Why would you want to know that? So you can say, well, you know, when, when Cooper took his a few years ago, he did it with one hand, and he was up all night before, and he still got a whatever, whatever. And everyone's like, oh, good for you, you know? Story toppers are my favorite in all this, right? It's like, I tell this all the time. It's like, comes home, and your wife walks in the door. She's like, you're not going to believe it. I met the mayor, and he was so nice. And you're like, oh, it's cool. My dad lived across the street from George Bush. Your dad, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know, but it's my story's better. Mayor, former president, I win. I mean, we love to interject our ownness on top of people. The greatest experts in the world are the ones that you don't even know are experts. The ones that are sitting in the room with information that don't make you feel like they have the information. That just say things to benefit your needs. That's what this true life-giving thing is. If you have to volley out your own word vomit, right, to build up your own thing or your own self-esteem or your own whatever, you're broken. If you rely on the need to share this information so that people will give you value, you've got to examine your heart. And look, these things aren't just audible, right? Paul's actually not just kind of referring to the idea here, but Paul's Basically giving us this bigger picture of going, how these words work actually is also true. And you tweet them. Can you write about them, blog, post, social media, write them in a letter, text? It counts. Those you sit here going, I've never said that, but you have sent your wife that text. What's the difference? Right? So we've got to have this thing where we, we choose things that are helpful and that are beneficial and benefits their needs. And the last piece he says there is that it benefits all those who listen. All those who listen. This is where speaking death gets cut off. If you're gossiping about someone or talking evil about someone, if that person sits there, does it benefit them? If Paul says that the words that come out of your mouth, the things that you sin, say, or do, 
that benefits everyone, meaning that person you're talking about, does it benefit them if they're sitting right there next to you? Well, if it doesn't, ask yourself, should I say it? Does this benefit every single person who would listen? That it may benefit all those who listen. What's the benefit of what's coming out of your mouth? Is it helpful, right? Is it building up? Does it meet their needs? And if every person heard it, would it be a benefit to them? Meaning that if the person that I have a disagreement with and I'm talking to someone about, they were sitting here, the way I'm speaking about them, would it benefit them? Or am I just using this as an avenue to vent to my friend about what a horrible person this other folk person is, this folk is? I say all these things because we like to skirt these things. And we put them in categories where they don't really apply to us. I'm not a gossip. I'm not a slander. I don't use foul. I don't do any of those things, right? The truth is you do. We all do. And that's why Paul's actually writing to the church about it. He's not writing it because he needs to fill some volume of words in order to get his publicist to put this letter out. He's not trying to fill space. I'm guessing when you're writing on papyrus with some feather, it's probably easier to skip a few words, right? Like, yeah, I probably could leave that out. So it's obviously important. And so much it's important that these are words that either bring death or they bring life. And listen to how. Listen to what he says in verse 30. We'll wrap it all up with this. If you don't see the gravity of it now, you will right here. Verse 30. And, right, that's that, the Greek word chi, which ties us to these two verses together. And, right, so benefit all those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The and ties this verse to verse 29. So the idea of letting unwholesome talk come out of your mouth that destroys and does all these things, right, and a call to do the reverse of that. When we don't do that, we engage in this Death speak, this speaking of death, we are doing something incredibly powerful that I don't even fully understand. And I'll be real honest when I say I don't understand it. But somehow our words, when we speak unwholesomely about people, about the community, they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, God's grief is different than ours, right? It has to be because it's not steeped in sin and and desiring to have like retribution or come back. It's not flanked by any of those things. It's holy and it's righteous. But somehow in this great mystery, when we destroy one another, it grieves the Holy Spirit and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which means that when people When you and I engage in this unwholesome talk, lying, filthy language, slander, gossip, destroying each other, the creation that God has breathed life into and made, even more so within the context of the church, it divides, it breaks, it makes things unwhole. When we do that, it actually breaks the Spirit of God. Now think about that for a moment, the weight of that. It's not that murder and adultery And coveting and stealing don't break God's heart, but they're different. They're different. And why? Because this sin is tied to relationships. This relational idea is so valuable to the Lord. Because of the creation that he made and how he calls the body to unity and how they're going to be the expression of the full measure of Christ. That when the people begin to destroy one another, when they begin to be the division and be the breaking, it grieves God's heart. 
which means when you speak ill of your wife and you crush her heart, you are actually and truly grieving the heart of God. And that's a bummer, man. Because <laughs> if you truly think about that, I already feel bad enough, right? But it should move us to something wholly different. It should be that motivating factor that says, then if I've done it, I want to, to make amends for it. I want to apologize. I want to free and forgive. I, I, I need to fix that. But it should also cause us to never want to be there again. And when you gossip about people, when you slander them, when you speak about them, when you do those things, you're breaking God's heart. In the most literal sense, you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You see why I say there's power in your words? Power to give life and power to take it? That we're called to refuse to speak death and choose to speak life? It's not just because Paul's saying this is how you play nice. He's saying these things matter so much to the Lord that when his creation speaks death to itself and to each other, it breaks his heart, grieves his heart. And he said, you have been sealed, right? Sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, meaning you have been saved and redeemed and marked. God's Spirit dwells in you. We learned all this in Ephesians 2 and 3. Dwells in you, and you are destroying the temple of God by how you speak to other people. That is God's dwelling place. That is where he has made his residence. That is where he has sealed and marked and loved and saved that person. How can you speak to them that way? They are gods. They are marked. And they are imperfect. And so are you. How can you let those things come out against the sealed and redeemed and saved? Who are you? Who entitles you? Who gives you the right? You don't have it. You don't have the right to speak those words over God's creation and over his people. It's got to get rid, we've got to get rid of it, right? And that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, period, end of sentence. Only come out of your mouth what is helpful for building up, right? That it may benefit those and everybody who listens for their good. And when you don't, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God, breaks literally the heartbeat of God in this mysterious, crazy way that we don't even fully understand. So you see what Paul's doing, right? He's honing all these things in because Jesus himself was just about life. Everything that Christ did was about bringing full, true, abundant life. He wants us to engage in life to the full, and he knows that when we destroy people and when people speak and destroy us, we are not engaged in this full, abundant life, and he wants the church to be this place. And so everything that Christ did was about unifying the church. It's a picture of this table that we're going to celebrate today. That Christ's entire death was this unifying, life-giving thing. That he so loved the world. In fact, he so loved every creation and every person that he most literally took on the sin of humanity to die. So that every single person, when they profess faith in Jesus Christ, would have the opportunity right, to proclaim those things and be saved. To be marked, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christ loves creation. And everything his life was about was about giving life. Even in his death, he gave life. And with three simple words, two simple words, sometimes even one word, we steal it. 
Think about what Christ has done and the power that your words carry and ask yourself, is what I'm about to say, does it give life or does it take it? Because Christ's words on that evening were the words of perfect and beautiful and truthful life. These are the words that actually gave meaning to everything that he was about to undertake and about to do. The words that he spoke on that Passover night were words that were going to be shed for centuries and upon centuries that would unite us, that we are actually going to speak this morning. They are words of life. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that everyone would take off and, and run, every, on that very night that even those that were the closest to him would abandon him, even those that he had walked with and, and spent time with, they would flee and he would be left alone. On the very night that Judas, one that he had walked with for years, would betray him with a kiss. Knowing all of these things, Jesus chose with his words, of course, in the most beautiful and most literal sense to give life. Instead of rebuking them for what they were going to do, he spoke life over them and who they could be. And that very night, after they had taken the main meal, Passover, they gathered together at the table, and Jesus took this loaf of bread, and he said, this bread is my body. And after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. In the most literal sense of the word, these are the words of life. That Christ so loved the world that he gave his own life that we might trust him and know him, have abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life forever. This is the unifying legacy that he left the church. Part of our responsibility as the church is to continue in that unifying legacy by how we love one another, how we speak to one another, and how we carry on those words of life. This morning as we participate in this meal, it is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We'll have stations in the front and the back. As you come forward, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And take and eat and return to your seat. We do have down front gluten-free uh, bread here for those that, that need it as well. But I ask you to examine your heart this morning. Before you walk up or walk towards the back or stand and join Don, our worship team, this morning, I ask you to examine your heart and just, God, is, is there something that I'm doing that's taking life? Are the words that I've spoken this weekend, this, this week, or even in the past, or even this morning, have they, have they stolen life from someone? Do I need to ask forgiveness? Do I need to confess? Do I need to rectify that by choosing to speak life? Do I need to change my narrative? Is there something you're calling me to that I need to release and let go of so that you can come before this table with an open and unfettered and receivable heart? Let's pray together as our elders come forward this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share this meal together. We ask, Lord, that you would um, bless our time as a community, that you are unifying us and connecting us and tying us together. Lord, we pray that you would use this meal as just that, Lord, as this place where we begin to, where we begin, begin to kind of step into this reality together. 
Lord, we ask that you would make this whole in our hearts, that we would truthfully examine the inner workings of who we are, and that we might know you and experience you. And Lord, if we need to ask forgiveness and for freedom to do that. But as we take this meal and we stand in worship, give us a pure and free heart. Release us from shame and guilt and let us ask forgiveness where we need to. Lord, that you might be glorified and that as a church we might fight to refuse to speak death and choose to speak life. In Jesus' holy and resurrected name, amen. As you feel called and led, we invite you to come down forward, participate or in the back, and then remain standing and we'll close our time in worship this morning. All our sins are stones at the bottom of your oceans, and all our filthy stains have been washed by the blood of the sun I have overcome
pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and honor that it is to be able to walk with you, to be given words of life that we've taken today, that you have gave us, the words of life that come literally from your mouth, that you are the logos, you are the word of God. And therefore, Lord, the things that come from your mouth are life-giving. Everything about you is about speaking life. You have given us the promise of abundant life and the promise of eternal life, Lord. All of it belongs to you. And you call the church to live and react in that same manner, to be people that give life, Lord, to speak life over one another, life that you have given us in Christ. And so, God, I pray this morning that as we close our time in worship, as we proclaim these things, as we go about our Mother's Day and do the things that we need to do, that the words that we speak would be life-giving because you gave us life first. So as we close our time in worship, let's proclaim these truths to God that he has given us life, and we, as members of the body, are called to speak it. Let's pray, or let's close our time in worship. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us as we forgive the ones who sinned against us. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let your kingdom come. It's your, 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 it's your,
things. One, uh, don't forget, if you're interested in our new member class, make sure you sign up out there. It's a great time to get to know who we are. Two, as simple as it sounds, go put these things into real life practice. Refuse to speak death and choose to speak life. Go in peace.